Good afternoon, Sangha. <clears throat> Can you all hear me? So um, today I'm going to talk about um, something that happens to most people as they start a retreat. And um, it actually happened to the Buddha because he put a very specific encounter he had with these things into uh, the four foundations of mindfulness. When the Buddha was meditating, he saw these um, floods. He saw that when he let go of, you know, the unintentional uh, attention when he got very specific about what he was paying attention to and what was going on with his mind, when he didn't just let it, you know, have its own momentum, chasing after slight pleasures or huge pleasures, running away from slight uh, unpleasant feelings and running faster against big unpleasant feelings, when you start really noticing what is happening with these hardened minds, with sati, with mindfulness, we notice what has been going on for a long time that really determines how most people live their life and what they do with their time and energy that we have not really noticed before. We haven't really noticed it because we keep running away from it because uh, a lot of it is pretty unpleasant. One way to think about this is um, the five hindrances. And the Buddha saw this in his mind because he actually put it, a discussion, an explanation about the five hindrances to awareness into the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You know, this is what he saw in his mind. So all of us who are having, having hindrances are in excellent company. Because this is what he saw. And um, the five hindrances are, there's two that are kind of opposite each other and then a fifth one. There's one that is aversion, and that shows up as probably 20 or 30 different things, but it's basically aversion. And that is just not liking what is present in the moment. And that could be a uh, subtle not liking. I really like to see how the hindrances cloud perception because we could have the um, hindrance of aversion or ill will or pushing away within perception. It's like a cloud over perception and everything that we look at is just not good enough, right? It's just not right in some very small way or in some big way and it just clouds our perception. 
aversion. And it's directed at everything. It's directed at us, at the person sitting in front of us. (laughs) We have um, two common things that happen on retreat, the Vipassana romance and the Vipassana vendetta. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that is, and the opposite of the aversion hindrance is of course greed or desire in the mind. And that can also cloud perception, so everything you look at, you want. You know, you just want everything that you look at. And um, these two um, mental factors, you know, they're mental factors that arise and pass away into the heart-mind. And they have a huge um, influence. If we're not aware of them with sati, if we can't see them with our mindfulness, they determine, you know, how we walk around in the world. And um, <clears throat> here on retreat, we might think somebody is really wonderful. You know, we might have greed towards a person on the retreat. It's very common. It's happened to me. I could tell you stories. Okay, I'll tell you one story. <laughs> I won't tell you who the teacher was, but... <laughs> I wanted to see a teacher that I'd been sitting with a very long time. And I walked in and, you know, I didn't want to tell him what the object of my desire was, but I went in and I said, my mind is on fire with desire. And the first thing he said was, Bonnie, you should stop looking at me so much. (laughs) (laughs) Busted. (laughs) But it was so wonderful that he just... It was such a neutral response, like, of course that's what happens, you know? It's not perfect, you know? None of our experience is going to be perfect. None of it is permanent, and none of it is personal. You know, just to remember that. So, you know, we have a desire for people in our minds. And it's so interesting. And then the opposite is true, too. There might be somebody on the retreat. You know, any time you're near them at all, they just bug you. You know, they are breathing too loud or walking too loud or taking too much food or not taking enough food or eating too fast or eating too slow or... You know, whatever it is, there's something that pushes our buttons and we just get triggered by this person or maybe a couple people on the retreat. And those are two hindrances that are, you know, opposite of each other. And it's so funny that we actually build up stories about who these people are. And, you know, we know absolutely nothing about who these people are. Well, maybe sometimes we know, even if we actually knew the person really well, we still don't understand, in large part, why the person is acting the way that they're acting. And we, but we have theories about it. We have theories about what a person is doing or thinking or why they're acting in a certain way. We have theories about it. And the, the theories about it are as substantial as if we drew a picture of them and it was a stick figure picture of them. 
you know, what do we really know about what the habits of mind of that person are or what, you know, what they're trying to accomplish in the interaction that's either making us love them or hate them. I think one thing that we can assume about all of us and about them is that whatever they're doing, they think it's going to make them happy. You know, that was one of the big um, wonderful teachings of His Holiness the Dalai Lama that we all just want to be happy. And anything that we're doing is probably consciously or unconsciously aimed at that, of wanting to be happy. So those are two of the hindrances. So greed, um, just wanting something, wanting something to be happening that's not happening. There's some greed in the mind. It's very, very common. And the opposite to aversion in the mind, wanting something that is happening not to be happening. And then there's two other ones that are opposite of each other. And remember, the Buddha saw this in his mind, so this is not personal. Uh, the other two are sleepiness and dullness. And I've heard <laughs> from many people that there's a fair amount of sleepiness and dullness happening. And it's classic. It's a classic thing that happens at the beginning of retreat. And, you know, we often take it really personally and see it as a sign of our a failure, you know. If I was in better physical shape, I wouldn't be tired. If I ate right, I wouldn't be tired. Name, you know, what theory we have of what would make the present different. Sleepiness and tiredness. And then the opposite of that is restlessness and worry. You know, we have energy at a pretty high level and we just can't sit still. And we keep ruminating, worrying about things. You know, um, maybe about situations that we left back in our life outside of retreat or just the many things that we're responsible for as human beings, as adults. You know, we have restlessness and we can't settle into this present moment. And then the fifth hindrance that is, in many cases, many people say that it is the most uh, dangerous hindrance. And that's the hindrance of doubt. Doubt. And that could be doubt in the practice itself or doubt in our ability to do it. I remember for years, the one question that would always be arising for me is, am I doing this right? Is this what I'm supposed to do given this situation? What's going on here? Do these teachers know what they're talking about? <laughs> so doubt. 
And um, there's this other teaching very central to Theravada Buddhism about the floods. And I want to talk about those because they really underlying what the um, hindrances are. And I just really love this um, idea or conceptualization. And um, the floods actually are much more obvious when we have let go of how we distract ourselves of what the habit patterns are of our hearts and minds. So um, how we so beautifully talked about, about dukkha or the first noble truth last yesterday afternoon. And he talked about um, you know, the noble truth of suffering. He talked a fair amount about suffering. And um, you know, that's essentially what the, the four floods are. They're an expression of suffering. So if any of you are having any level of suffering, physical pain, either a little bit or a lot, or mental pain, either a little bit or a lot, or psychic pain, congratulations. <laughs> That's an insight. You're actually having an insight into the first noble truth. And they say that the four noble truths um, they each have a verb associated with them. And the first noble truth, uh, the verb associated with dukkha, is that it has to be known. So if you're knowing it, that's exactly what needs to happen. So you're not doing anything wrong. In fact, you're doing something right. You're opening to what the truth is of uh, these influences on our life that are often totally invisible because we, you know, pack our life with, essentially with the five hindrances. You know, craving something that we think is going to bring us some satisfaction or trying to push away something that we think is standing in the way of our satisfaction or too dull and sleepy to have any awareness whatsoever, or just uh, too energetic and you know, allowing um, worry and restlessness to be our total experience, or not being aware that there's doubt and ambivalence and uncertainty, uncertainty in the mind. So the four floods, this is what underlies them. The first is the flood of sensuality. And that's definitely the flood of the propensity to want romance and to want love. That is so fundamental to being a human being. You know, that's one of the big places that we get meaning in our life. And the place where, um, you know, we get a huge identity as well, right? And uh, the flood of sensuality, um, I personally think that for um, self-identified men, uh, the, f the flood of sensuality is more about sex, and for women it's about romance. But, you know, there's always more uh, difference within a group than between a group, so <laughs> I'm sure, you know, it's not always true, but, you know, sensuality... 
thinking that if we just had this in our central life, maybe around relationship, then we would really be happy. Uh, you know, investing a lot in that and thinking that that's the source of some w- real well-being for us. And I'm not saying that it, it doesn't have to be, uh, that it doesn't necessarily, that it can't be. It absolutely can be. But if we expect our relationships to enlighten us, and if we expect our relationships to be the source of, um, you know, a well-being that's not dependent on anything external, you know, we're, sh- you know, we're doomed to failure because they can't provide that for us. They can't. You know, relationships. So I like to tell the story, I am recently engaged. I think I told you guys already, right? Did I tell you? Yeah, I, I got, I'm 62 and I got engaged about two years ago. And I winked at this guy on match because <laughs> that's how people are meeting these days. That's the truth of it. I winked at this guy on match because he was a Buddhist. He was actually a born Buddhist. He's a Japanese American and he was born and raised a Buddhist. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And um, I also winked at him because, you know, he lived in the Seattle area and he worked for a tribe. He worked for the Muckleshoot tribe. And I was going, wow, I work with tribes. He works with tribes. We're both Buddhist. (laughs) 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 Match made in heaven. And, And when I met him, oh my gosh, I was so impressed with his sila, his ethical conduct. He had really beautiful ethics. And that's what I really fell in love with that he, you know, his speech was really measured and he was careful and his actions, you know, he was really um, discerning about what was offered and what wasn't offered. And his livelihood was a little bit questionable. <laughs> well, he's an accountant and he, he actually, um, he works for the, um, uh, the fisheries, the tribal fisheries which, you know, according to the Buddhist ethics, you cannot be involved with any uh, butchering or killing anything. And for a while, that was like it. You know, we're not going to get together. But, you know, the tribes have a very different relationship. They're spending millions of, you know, profits of gaming on salmon restoration and uh, habitat restoration, and they're buying back their homeland that was they've been dispossessed from. They have a totally different relationship to the natural environment, and he's in, is in support of that, you know. And I thought, well, yeah, that's very wholesome. So that's what I really fell in love with about him. And after a couple years, you know, he got got on board, but. <laughs> But, you know, even with all of that and even with how wonderful he is and he's, we've moved in together, you know, I don't expect him to enlighten me. And I realize we each have kind of separate lives that we admire with each other. And, you know, I'm gone a lot, actually. And, you know, he's kind of low maintenance, which is very cool. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that He's a conditioned thing. You know, he is part of conditioned existence. And I, if I expect that to provide any long-lasting well-being, 
It's not, you know, that's expecting too much out of that relationship. It's expecting too much, you know. It's an excellent place for me to practice my own sila and my own mind training and my own wisdom, but to expect some type of lasting well-being that, that is um, totally perfect, totally permanent, and totally personal, it's not going to happen. That is not the nature of him as a conditioned thing and our relationship as a conditioned thing. Our relationship is subject to those three characteristics of reality. It is imperfect, it is impermanent, and it is impersonal. You know? Everyone in this room would love to have a relationship that fulfilled them and enlightened them. Whether it was with a partner or a child or a relative or with the community. I mean, that's what we all want. And that's part of the flood of sensuality. Um, the flood of sensuality also in, is involved with uh, us thinking you know, if we had the right clothes, we could be happy. If we, you know, it's about possessions or anything that we can see. If we lived at the right place, had the right house, and had a view of the Puget Sound with whales in the distance, we would be happy. You know, anything that we could see, anything that we could hear. If I could just play the violin and were, was part of the Seattle Symphony, I would be happy. If I could just, you know, cook food every night that I would really love and was healthy for me, I would be happy. If my body didn't hurt, if I could only feel pleasant sensations in my body, I would be happy. If I would only have positive thoughts, I would be happy. But all of those things are subject, even if we had the exact perfect body and the perfect house and, you know, anything related to uh, sensual pleasure or sensuality in life, there's no such thing as the perfect house or the perfect relationship or the perfect body or wardrobe or um, any of that because they are all subject to the three realities of life. They're all imperfect. They're all imper uh, impermanent, and they're all impersonal. I've got it going pretty well for myself. I'm just gonna say, you know, I've got a great job that actually pays me pretty good money. I get to sit up here as sage on the stage. <laughs> I teach at, you know, the two motherships of Western mindfulness. And you would think that I would just be so happy and absolutely satisfied with my life. Guess what? <laughs> it just doesn't happen that way. Any amount of satisfaction and well-being that I do have, and actually I do think I have a lot, it's not due to any of those things. It's due to me having done work looking at how that all works here 
It's an internal sense of satisfaction and well-being and contentment. It's absolutely not, not based on any of those things externally. So the second flood is the flood of becoming. And I love this one. This is one of my biggest investigations now. So the flood of sensuality, being overwhelmed by desires for happiness through sensual stuff. The second is being overwhelmed and pulled around by a desire for happiness around identities that we want to have. You know, we want to be a sage on the stage. We want to be, you know, name it. We want to be the perfect partner, the perfect parent. Uh, We want to be in charge at our work. We want to be a very high earner. The flood of becoming. There's certain jobs that we would like to have. And we could get all of those jobs and there would be still a sense of sankara dukkha, that all-pervading dukkha, a sense of a little bit of ambivalence, a little bit of ambivalence associated with all of those. And actually the Buddha has really, or our tradition has really wonderful um, teachings about this flood of becoming. There's a wonderful teaching about mana or conceit that I really love. It's really kind of the edge of my practice right now. And we're all experiencing that in this room. I'm experiencing it right now. You know, am I a better Dharma teacher? Is this a better talk? Is this a worse talk? Or is it the same as talk of what my other teachers are giving? (laughs) That's how conceit shows up. It shows up as better than And the Buddha was so brilliant, he also said that conceit shows up as worse than as well. Isn't that interesting? Because it's all still about me and who I am and what my identity is. Worse than. And it also shows up as equal to. You know, as equal to. I love the worse than conceit because... Um, hidden within the worse than conceit is this idea of a grandiose person who we should be, isn't it? <laughs> it's like my Dharma talk can't be just okay. It has to enlighten every single one of you. You know, there's a grandiose idea of who we would be if we weren't the, this worse than self. When you really think about it logically, You know, if this isn't good enough right here, what's the standard that we're evaluating by? It's usually this grandiose idea of perfect and permanent and personal that is just not going to happen. And um, the Buddha said that uh, conceit or mana this becoming is related to four things. He was so brilliant. This was 2,600 years ago. He said it was, uh, part of it was related to birth. 
and we can just see, you know, that was the truth of it 2,600 years ago, and that's the truth of it now, you know, by your um, gender and sexual orientation and ethnicity and, you know, all of that, you know, our whole world is stratified by that. So birth is a source of identity and clinging. The second one is um, Panyamana, education, level of education or knowledge. And oh my gosh, I have this all the time. Actually, my wonderful teacher Mark, somewhere in in here, (laughs) there he is, he gave me a great insight about this just the other day. Uh, After the Dharma talk, he said, you know, Bonnie, um, you use terms like everybody knows what they are. And I said, yeah, but aren't I teaching graduate school? <laughs> and I just noticed that I assume I have this, you know, assumption of, you know, I know stuff and everybody should be just right here, right below of what I know. And it's a source of identity that was, is often invisible. It's invisible to me and invisible to all of us. And then there's also uh, Panyamana that's... Um, Worse than, it's like, I don't know any of this stuff. What are they talking about? You know, they should really get it together and teach it in a way that we understand it. You know, forget all that poly stuff. And they need to teach it to the way that Americans in 2017 in Woodacre understand it. You know, or same as mana. That's really interesting. You know, everybody here, uh, everybody is here for the same purpose. And, you know, why do we have affinity groups for POC and LGBTQ? You know, we're all the same here. And those identities don't matter anyway. Same as mana. So there's birth mana, knowledge mana. I love this one. Uh, There's Donna mana. Wow, that's a good one. Donna is money. So people who have a lot of money, it's interesting, the identities that are associated with that. Or people who don't have any money. Or people who, you know, are just doing okay. And the identities that are associated with that. And then the fourth mana is how you look. And we know that the world is driven by that, or our our country is anyway. So those are the first two floods the flood of sensuality, and then the flood of becoming. And just notice how often you're telling yourself who you are. But I'm this. No, but I'm that. But, you know, I don't have this. I don't have that. Just notice how often we tell ourselves that. Or how often we compare ourselves or the way we look or our age or our ethnicity or how our body looks or how attractive we feel we are or not attractive. You know, that measuring. We're always measuring ourselves against some other ideal. And then the third flood is also one of my favorites, a flood of views. And this is any idea you have of what is right and what is true. So Buddhism is the best religion because... Or, you know, my particular party that got into office or didn't get in the office is like this. And, you know, 
Women are hopeless drivers. You know, the United States is the source of truth and progression in the world. Western knowledge is so important for everybody to know. I'm a Taurus, and that means that I get along with Scorpios. <laughs> you know, these views, there's this brilliant uh, Buddhist teaching, too, about something called the Vipalasas. It says that um, when we don't really uh, have correct perception, and, you know, we only take in probably 25% of what's in the environment, right, because we just can't hold it all. And we're drawn to take in only certain things that probably we think have a hit of pleasure to them. So uh, we take in limited uh, information in the environment with our perception, and we name things and think we know what things are. And that gives rise to thoughts. And whether the thoughts are correct or not are dependent on, you know, how true our perception was. And, you know, we have thoughts that are based on a faulty perception. So we have faulty thoughts. And this turns into these hardened views. You know, the ways that we understand ourselves, you know, partly based on those, uh, you know, those um, structures of conceit by birth and by education and by money and by appearances. We don't even realize how they are, you know, um, influencing how we walk around in the world because they're largely invisible to us. And these are the things that feed the hindrances, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. It feels, it uh, fuels you know, greed or what we want or a version of what we don't want and, you know, what we space out to because it's just not interesting or what we obsess about and worry about and get restless about and our doubt, you know, our lack of commitment, our ambivalence about what's happening in the moment or our chances for freedom. So that is part of understanding the first noble truth the truth of dukkha. You could, you know, we could have the most perfect president, <laughs> the most perfect, you know, political system. We could have the most perfect economy, whatever that would look like, whatever we individually think that would be. The perfect job, the perfect relationship, kids, house, everything, and there would still be a sense of, there's got to be something more. Because in its nature, the conditioned world can never give us that sense of satisfaction and ease and relaxation that we are, that we're in this room to cultivate. But guess what? Guess what the good news is? You know how we transform all of that? Sati, mindfulness. It is the appropriate way of handling all of it. The beginning, appropriate response to all of it. Sati. And concerning the hindrances, whenever we're struggling or we're ever unhappy, you know, what I tend to do is just do a um, hindrance checklist. What hindrance am I having right now? 
Is it greed? Do I want something to be happening that's not happening? Is it aversion? Am I so upset with this pain in my body that's either mild or really intense? Actually, we're seeing the natures of our bodies. We're seeing what aging looks like. We're seeing what change, you know, in the body looks like. And, you know, it was there before you came on retreat. It's just that we distract ourselves not to see it. That's the truth of it. We're seeing the truth of what it means to be born in a body. So, you know, we, what we do is we take our mindfulness and we put a frame around um, our experience. And, you know, oh, this is aversion. There's aversion in the mind. And there's aversion in my perceptual frame. Everything I look at is just not quite good enough. You know, they don't have the right tea in the kitchen. The water's either too hot or not hot enough. They don't have the kind of sweetener I like. Where's my sriracha? They don't have my sriracha. You know, whatever it is that we either want or don't want. You know, we take our mindfulness and we put a frame around that. Oh, this is aversion in the mind. How does aversion feel? And it becomes, it becomes what we investigate with our a mindfulness. And we approach it a few different ways. We feel what the energetic hit of it is. There's an energetic hit of these hindrances. Aversion um, distorts perception for us not to like anything. And all of these hindrances distort perception, absolutely. You know, nothing looks quite good. Nothing is what would bring us satisfaction in the moment. So we can feel what it's like energetically. And we can inquire to what emotions does it give rise to? Oh, anger and uh, dissatisfaction and criticism, critical judgment for myself and others. And then also um, uh, the emotions and thoughts it gives rise to. What thoughts does this hindrance give rise to? And when we can put a mindfulness frame around it, we don't let it go. Wisdom lets it go. With mindfulness, wisdom arises and sees, oh, this is unwholesome. This is not leading to my well-being or happiness or that of anybody around me. And, you know, we make a decision that we don't want to walk around all crabby all the time. And we say, oh, we're going to let this go. And we realize that, yeah, it's true that life is imperfect, and life is impermanent, and life is impersonal. And we don't necessarily have to grab onto the second arrow of thinking that it could be any other way, or that we need to somehow do something so those three things aren't in our life. Does that make sense? We surrender to the fact that everything is imperfect and impermanent permanent and impersonal and we rest back and are just you know actually that can bring us some sense of satisfaction we can be absolutely okay with that but it doesn't come from looking externally to change the external conditions in order for that peace of mind to come we're not carpeting the world 
we're putting on slippers. So when we're getting uh, triggered by people and by things, you know, we could concentrate on the external and blame. You know, blame's a really interesting concept in Buddhism. You know, I sat with that monk that was the most cooked person I ever met personally, and he talked about blame. You know, blame is really um, probably an expression of aversion, wouldn't you say? One of the hindrances. And it really doesn't do us any good. I mean, we want to, whenever we get triggered, it's a great opportunity to look to see what we're thinking here and what we're feeling and what we think is true here. And um, so that's really where the work is. It's internally to see, uh, to put a frame around aversion and uh, around our Vipassana romance and around our sleepiness and um, lack of effort and just boredom. It's wonderful to see boredom. It's so interesting to say, yeah, I'm going to set an intention that I want to notice boredom as soon as it arises. And it's interesting what happens when you do that. Yeah. In my experience, you know, boredom would stay there for a second and then wisdom would say, oh, boredom, I see you, boredom. And it would just pretty much disappear because you would have interest in what's happening there. So the mindful frame around aversion and greed and wanting something and around restlessness and worry, you know, know that we're obsessing about how do I take this back into the world and what are gonna people going to think of me when I get back and I'm almost enlightened? <laughs> I'm going to be so cool. We're creating identities of get going back into the world when people are, you know, from my experience of doing this for 35 years, people aren't that interested. <laughs> because everybody is thinking about themselves, right? <laughs> it's so in interesting how narcissistic we all are, really. So sati is the most appropriate response to the floods and to the hindrances. And just to settle, to settle back and know that everybody in this room is having hindrances. It's not personal. Hindrances are an expression of nature. You know, the Buddha saw that in his own mind. On the night before his enlightenment, or the night of his enlightenment, you know, he was visited by the hindrance of uh, self-doubt. You know, Mara came, they personified it. Mara came and said, who do you think you are to be sitting here, to be sitting here wanting to be free? Do you deserve to be free, Buddha? You know, why do you even think that that's possible for you? Who do you think you are? And the Buddha, you know, practicing sati mindfulness, he saw, oh, you know, Self-hate is arising. Worse than mana is arising. He saw it. And rather than to believe it with the sati, he said, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. And you know what he did? This is so beautiful. And this is what we all can do when we have self-doubt. He reflected on his goodness. You know, he reflected on the multiple lifetimes that he had took birth as a human and all 
of his generosity and his love and his goodwill and all his positive qualities that he had developed over countless lifetimes. And he touched the earth and he asked the earth to bear witness. Hey, guess what, Mara? I deserve to be awake. Let's ask the earth if I deserve to be awake. And then actually in one story, the earth actually personifies and arises as a goddess and says, yes, Gautama, and yes, Mara, the Buddha deserves to be enlightened. And uh, the earth takes her hair and she rinses out her, she squeezes out her hair and this flood comes, actually a positive flood and it, and it uh, sweeps Mara away. So I invite you all, when you're having doubt about the practice or yourself, reflect on your goodness, reflect on why you actually came here and what it took for you to be here for this week and what your intentions are for this week. And um, touch the earth and say yes. And you know, that's just delusion in my mind right now. And uh, investigate it and let it pass. So, I will leave you with that. And uh, it's a lifelong It's a lifelong journey of noticing these uh, negative mental qualities and uprooting them. We can think of our path really as two simple things, purification and cultivation. It's wonderful to have sobbing meditation. I still have sobbing meditation when I'm in, in intensive practice. I'll stay in my room and sob for a couple of days if I need to. Or stomping meditation, you know, oh, go in the woods and have an hour of just stomping. But when we do that, you know, we, you know, pay honor to that emotion. You know, emotions just want to be felt and then they can pass. But we don't want to enact that in the world because that is, um, you know, there's karma for that. So we pay honor to it, we acknowledge it but we don't want to have any of our actions of body, speech, and mind informed by any unwholesome qualities because that is the source of unhappiness for ourselves and those around us in the world. And when we act uh, from really wholesome qualities, the ten paramis, generosity, and any of the brahma-viharas, and discernment, and patience, patience is excellent on retreat. You even can ask patience to arise. When you're getting just bored and antsy, just say, may patience arise. May patience arise. You deserve it. We all deserve it. So let's sit for a minute. May all beings have mindfulness. Sati Sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension.
May all beings know wisdom and love. May all beings be free. <laughs>